This bonus series was launched in cooperation with SIX, the Swiss Stock Exchange. It focuses on the companies that completed the first Sparks IPO Academy course, a six-month fast-track IPO training program designed for high-potential scale-ups. And now, on with the show. I'm just, in general, a person who is not easily satisfied. And I, I, I don't like rules, and I don't like usually things the way they are. And now that is probably a precondition for an entrepreneur. But on the other hand, it can also have his backside because it's not great if you're never happy, right? And you always feel like you have to change things. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Stefan, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much, Sylvan. A pleasure to be here. You are the founder, chairman and former CEO at Loanbooks the independent debt-issuing platform that connects the public sector, large corporate and real estate borrowers with banks and institutional investors. Before we talk about your company and what you built there, I actually want to start with your personal background. Your first venture was back in 1995 when you founded the Asian Food Express. You grew up to 20 employees and 2,000 customers, and then you actually later sold it in 1998 already. What was this adventure like back then? Yeah, it was great. It was my first entrepreneurial adventure. And uh, I learned an unbelievable amount, as you can imagine. I was at the time actually employed at Swiss Bank Corporation as a foreign exchange trader. And in the 90s, it was very wild in foreign exchange. Currencies, you know, they moved like crazy. There was a lot of screaming. Everything was still doing without digital solutions. Mm -hmm. So everything over the phone and by voice. And uh, during these hectic times, we oftentimes had to eat in the bank at the desk and uh, obviously had to order in food. Mm -hmm. And so in Basel, there was only pizza and sandwiches. And I was in touch with the whole world the whole day, people in New York, brokers in London, Singapore and so on. And they always told me how they order food at the Lebanese and the Thai and the Indian. <laughs> and I was really tired of having pizza and sandwiches. So I said, I need to start something. I need to start an Asian food delivery service in Basel. And so I uh, rented a, an industrial kitchen. I made sure I can always do the early shift in the bank. So from 7 to 5 o'clock, I was screaming around on the trading floor. Mm -hmm. I left at 5. I went to buy vegetables and meat and uh, put on the apron <laughs> in the kitchen and started cooking, right? That's crazy. And uh, it, was, it was intense because I had to open usually until midnight. And after midnight, you know, to clean the kitchen and the deep fryer and uh, do the cashing up. And then at 2 o'clock, I was home, took a shower. And at uh, seven, I was back at the trading desk. Wow, that sounds like very, very intense days. It was great. It was fun. <laughs> but then you already decided to sell the company three years after you started it. Why, why was that? Well, you know, I got an offer then from LGT in Liechtenstein. Mm -hmm. So I moved away from Swiss Bank Corporation in Basel. I think I was actually 96. So one year after I had founded the company. And uh, I still remained, obviously, owner and, and CEO of Asian Food Express, but I had to hire people. And I, at four o'clock, I usually left early in Liechtenstein, drove mm -hmm. back to Basel, worked Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Sunday night drove back to Liechtenstein. And whenever I did a surprise visit during the week, I realized the kitchen wasn't actually so clean. 
revenues didn't go up that steeply anymore. So mm-hmm. it's always the same. You know, when the founder isn't there anymore, it's not always going as it should be. And so I decided I had to make a decision between wearing a tie at the bank or mm-hmm. cleaning the deep fryer in my own shop. Yeah. And I decided for the bank. Yeah. But these days, again, they were like super intense. You know, you worked basically all day long and then got a bit of sleep and back to work. Would you recommend to to do that or would you do that again now looking back? Or was it also a bit too much to, you know, also keep a healthy balance? Well, it's a good question. And I think I would recommend to every young woman or young man in their 20s to just explore whatever your heart contends and I mean I didn't this wasn't very stressful for me even though it was super intense but I loved it I loved doing this right it fulfilled the need that I had and many other people had and then you have success and and your friends enjoy it too and it was just fun it was really just playing around I actually mentioned that in another interview that I gave once I said entrepreneurship is like playing for adults and I still believe that this is true and but uh, you know from from today's point of view as a 50 year old um, I have to say that sleeping only like three hours four hours a night is not a good idea Mm -hmm. and I think when you're 20 you can easily put that away and that's not a big issue but if people don't sleep for years and years long enough then it's it's going to pay its toll and it's not good for health so yes and no I I get that yeah (laughs) I'm sure you can relate (laughs) that's I guess that's sort of a bit part of it but it's always important to to reflect and to see Am I enjoying this? Is it adding a positive value to my life or is it actually draining from me energy-wise? And then you need sometimes to make a tough decision. It is true. And I mean, these decisions are tough. Uh, And I, you know, for me, this is especially true because I think I'm a person who needs change all the time. Mm -hmm. I get bored very quickly. I've actually never really been and remained in the driver's seat of anything for more than probably four years, maybe three years. And I usually realize boredom kicks in after a, f- a few years and mm-hmm. uh, I, I am somebody who really needs that change and it's not easy to then tell the team hey guys I'm leaving but you just yeah. keep keep plugging right so that's always difficult absolutely and we see that you're incredibly active if you look just at your CV because you've worked in corporate you've been a lecturer at HSG at the University in Zurich as well and you're also an avid startup investor and board member so you never really seem to stand still right and I wonder, where does your entrepreneurial drive come from? Is that just something that's deeply rooted in your DNA? Or did you have any role models or other people that inspired you? Yeah, there's probably two main reasons. I think uh, one is my father was an entrepreneur, um, okay. even though he had only a very small bookkeeping and tax consulting company. Uh, and they were like three employees, but... You know, I, I saw how he worked, how independent he was, and, and he liked that. And I guess that probably influenced me too. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is, I'm just in general a person who is not easily satisfied. And I, I, I don't like rules, and I don't like usually things the way they are. And now that is probably a precondition for an entrepreneur. But on the other hand, it can also have his backside because it's not great if you're never happy, right? And you always feel like you have to change things. And, and, and so I have actually the last few years after I've uh, given up my CEO job at Loan Books, I have worked on that too. And, and with meditation, tried to be more satisfied and, and grateful. So there's, again, both sides of the metal. Right. There's never a right or wrong. It's just like everything has its pros and cons, so yes. to speak. 
And I wonder if I wonder actually if you know in the earlier years in your career, the aggression and the drive is more important, and then settling down to some extent and becoming more reflective is maybe something that you develop over the years. Um, it, it, I, I, there's probably a correlation with age and experience, I would say. Hopefully, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about loan books. You started the company in 2015, and before you actually started loan books, you've also invested in startups. Was that sort of your first touching point then into the, the ecosystem of startups? Because you've invested in companies like Grapefruit, Omnibis in Nigeria, Carvolution, Future that we already had on the show mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So you're very active there. Yeah. Uh, I started investing early, that's right. Um, and I think it was always because, again, I had a need or I saw a need in the market mm -hmm. and I couldn't take care of it. So I found an entrepreneur who was taking care of that. I really liked the team. I liked the idea. I saw the potential and then wanted to support them. There's very few investments that I actually make where I'm not involved in one or the other way. Sometimes it's as board members, sometimes I just advise or coach the entrepreneurs. Uh, and, and sometimes I act as an advisor uh, in a formal role. But it, it's again, this, this drive, this need to change things. And, you know, if we can make some money of it, then that's great, obviously. Yeah. But it is quite a different playing field, right, from building your own company where really your head's down operationally active versus investing, where you, of course, probably also support beyond the pure financial investment, beyond the pure money, but mm -hmm. you're far more away from the actual operations of a business. Yeah. And that's also something that I like today. Uh, okay. You know, that was a conscious decision I made two years ago at Loan Books, where I said, okay, the company has grown to this point, and I am personally somebody who does the early phase, I think, quite well. Uh, where I can do things myself, where I can get my hands dirty in it myself, uh, when I see the customers myself, when I can be involved in the product myself. And uh, at the point in time where it grows so big that I'm not only managing the people who do all these things, but I'm actually managing people who manage people who do those things. Mm -hmm. I'm too far away. And, uh, and I think that's the point where, for me, it's time to step back and let another person who is much more qualified to do that phase of the company than take on. And, and I agree with you. I think being an entrepreneur and starting something and actually doing the work is very different from being an investor. Mm -hmm. But being an entrepreneur and investing into startups I think gives me the perspective of the entrepreneur. So I, I realize when I invest, I'm oftentimes in, in negotiations about the terms, mm -hmm. more actually on the entrepreneurial side and negotiate against myself, uh, especially if they're like VCs involved or, 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 or professional investors mm -hmm. who mostly just want to take care of the financial benefits for of themselves. Course. And I always see the position of the entrepreneurs and sometimes help them, you know, to maybe avoid one or the other clause, um, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so, yeah, it's two different things, but I think it's fantastic if you can bring it together. And mm -hmm. I do believe that entrepreneurs who invest into startups are probably a tad more helpful than um, pure financial investors. Yeah, thanks to your own operational mm -hmm. experience that you can bring to the table. We heard with the Asian Food Express, you started that out of your own problem because you wanted to be able to order food or get Asian food in, in Basel. What actually inspired you or what problems did you see when you then started Loan Books? 
So the company that I ran before Loan Books was called Pro Resource, and that was a debt advisory business. Mm-hmm. So what we did is we helped very large borrowers to optimize their debt, you know, costs, duration, risk, contracts, and so on. Yeah. And uh, I, we had all kinds of clients in, every, in, in, in all kinds of segments. But what I realized is that in the, in the public sector, like municipalities or uh, public hospitals, for example, it was always very similar, the transaction. Mm-hmm. They didn't need so much consulting. It wasn't very difficult to get the funds because it's very safe, very secure, uh, right? The municipalities don't go bankrupt usually, usually uh, in yeah. Switzerland. I think we had one Fingers case crossed. a long time ago, <laughs> exactly. But so, so the risk is not very high. There's yep. not a lot of explanation that has to be done. There's not a lot of marketing that has to be done. Mm-hmm. And if something in financial services becomes a commodity, it needs to be digitized. Mm-hmm. So for me, this was very clear that this needs to be done more efficiently, cheaper, more transparent for the client. And that's actually why why I started Loan Books. So sort of, again, this personal relation to the problem where you could see it and then make something happen. Do you think that you know the personal experience is an important starting point to start a company? I think it's the best one, actually, because if you are the customer, right, or the yeah. potentially future customer, you you can relate to the to the to the others uh, now oftentimes other people think a little differently maybe and that's something that you find out when you look at product market fit in the beginning mm-hmm. but i do believe that this is a great starting point and for me it was always the biggest motivation to solve a problem that i have and when i then realized yeah. hey many other people have this problem too then there is a very good basis for a successful business exactly and you originally started loan books and then later Dario and Andy joined you as mm-hmm. late co-founders. Mm-hmm. How did you meet your two co-founders? Yeah, interesting. I said, I, it was clear to me, Pro Associ, I, I was I did by myself, right, in the beginning. And then later on, I was very lucky to have people who, you know, succeeded and, and who were able to, to be my successors ultimately. Uh, and with Loan Books, um, actually, one of the guys from my former company was involved as well in the beginning. He had 25%, I 75%, and we started this idea together. Uh, and then at some point, we said, this is not going to work, right? I was kind of managing both companies at the same time with his help. And we said, okay, this has to, we have to separate this. There is also somewhat a conflict of interest. Where are we now going to book the client? Which client goes where? So we decided to separate this. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that's, again, it's not an easy situation. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we did that. And so he kept the existing business. Um, and I was chairman for a uh, board member first, and then I faded out and he took over my shares. And I took over loan books. And it was clear to me, I needed to have people in, in the boat with me that, that help. And I very firmly believe in participation in, in you know, giving shares to, to key employees, so mm-hmm. they have skin in the game. Yeah. And I was really looking for first, I was really looking for a techie. Uh, an absolutely brilliant techie who hopefully would not only be able to code, but also understand the business side. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I asked around in my network, I asked actually somebody who I thought uh, was brilliant, but he was locked in in another uh, startup, and so he couldn't join. And he recommended Dario. And so I met with Dario, and I think from the beginning, I realized he sees the potential, he understood the problem. And I also thought that he can, from the technical side, he can probably take care of this and do it. And then mm-hmm. it's a dialogue, right? You get a dialogue and you, you, you agree at some point, and then he joined first. Okay. 
And then with Andy, it was a bit different. Uh, when I taught at uh, the MBA program at Harisky in St. Gallen, he was one of my students. And I was very impressed uh, by him uh, as a student. Uh, and and we, we stayed in touch. I actually tried to hire him for my former company too, uh, which I wasn't able to do. But then with loan books, I was able to convince him. And he joined, uh, I think, about nine months uh, in and then became our first COO in the company. Amazing. Yeah. One thing you mentioned, and I think that could be a learning from the first venture that you did, is that you wanted to incentivize key employees. Yes. That seems to be a very effective way of making sure that people also keep the standard high and clean up the kitchen, so to speak, when mm -hmm. the boss is not there. Yeah. Is, I think is that's that a valid assessment? Yes. And, you know, my principle there goes even a little further. I mm -hmm. think whatever we do, it's very important that interests are aligned. And I see that being done wrong in almost everywhere, especially in, corp in the corporate world. So the incentives have to be aligned. And not only between, for example, the founder and, and the employees, mm -hmm. but also with the clients, also with every stakeholder around, ideally. Yeah. Sometimes it's not possible. But if you can really align interests, and, and also with, especially also with compensation and how clients pay and so on, everybody needs to win in an ideal world. Mm -hmm. And maybe everybody doesn't win as big, but hands over a little bit, a part of their win to other people. But in the end, everybody needs to have the same interest. And if you can do that, then I think there's a high chance of success. Yeah. And as soon as there's conflict of interest, that's going to be really hard. Mm -hmm. And it's basically, I imagine this is a, is a uh, vector. If you are aligned, you have a much stronger vector to yeah, good... row mm -hmm. together in the same direction. That's way more powerful mm -hmm. than having to try to align different vectors. Yes, it was a very good, a very good uh, analogy. I love it. Yeah. So let's also talk about what you actually do with loan books. You have 170 active investors. You have an NPS, a Net Promoter Score of 90 plus, which is crazy high. So I want to talk about the benefits for borrowers, but also for lenders. Can you? elaborate a bit more what are the benefits that they get out of the platform mm -hmm. and how you actually operate yeah absolutely so i mean the way it works uh, is if you're a borrower and you need a loan let's take an example that you're a real estate company and you you acquire a new project or a, a new building and you're interested in financing that with 30 million uh, you could either then you know write an investment memorandum or uh, go on a roadshow and talk to banks, talk to other bankers. You may not have access to other institutional investors. Maybe you do have them. Uh, most of them don't. And then you get the uh, offers from, the, from, from several lenders. Let's say there's mostly banks. You have uh, contracts to read and study. Those are probably usually, I don't know, 20 to 50 pages long, depending on how difficult it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, you get some offers this week and some offers in two weeks. Uh, you're not quite sure exactly what the interest rate swap rate is at this point in time. You look it up in the newspaper, but that's from yesterday and so on. And so on. so um, it's, it's, it's quite complex, the process, and it takes a long time. And then you go into a second round or a third round. You have to meet the people. You have to talk to the people. Mm -hmm. And so this is not necessary anymore, right? Instead of doing that, you prepare the document once. Uh, you can use loan books to support you on that. You upload the documents and you put in your financing request into the platform. And that mm -hmm. takes really just a minute or 30 seconds. Even. Wow. And after that, you decide who should see your 
request. Uh, usually people just put it into, onto the platform for everybody to see. Right. And then the investors, uh, they immediately see your request if it matches their criteria in terms of volume, uh, investment object, and so on. Mm-hmm. And uh, they look at it and they make an offer. And the contracts of the lenders are digitized on the platform. So when the borrower and the deadline is decided by the borrower, so let's say Friday at 2.30, they want to see the offers. At that Mm -hmm. point in time, the borrower has all the real interest rates, the real costs, apples to apples comparable on the platform, as well as all the contracts, the clauses of the contracts. He doesn't need to read all these pages, but it just compares the main terms of the contract and says, okay, the contracts are all pretty much the same, that's fine. So mm-hmm. it's maybe just about um, uh, interest rates, for example, or, or yeah. how this should be secured. And then because it's all digital, they can close the deal right away there with, uh, with a click and then they have their 30 million secured. Wow, that sounds crazy efficient compared to the old way of doing it. It is more efficient, that's for sure, yes. And and I guess also the investor universe is, is much bigger, right? You, mm-hmm. you don't usually get uh, several hundred potential investors in one shot. Right. And uh, we actually had a very nice, because we just started with real estate about uh, nine months ago, and we had a very nice um, experience there with the first clients. Uh, you know, when we did muni loans, and we still do muni loans, you usually have maybe between two and ten offers. Right? Mm-hmm. And then we had the, the first real estate transaction, and we had 130 <laughs> offers for that, <laughs> for that first request. And it just shows, like, this, uh, this works, right? And also real estate is obviously more interesting for lenders because it's a higher yield. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, now I guess yields are higher anyway. True. Um, but to make such a platform work, you also have, at least at the beginning, solved the chicken and egg problem, right? Mm. So you have to bring the supply, but also the demand side on the platform. How do you do this? Yeah, it's a very, it's a very difficult thing. And, uh, you know, I'm involved in many platforms and it's always the same problem. Yeah. How do you get to do this? Um, I mean, when we started in Switzerland... It was really calling people. I remember I was just on the phone with people and then they referred me to other people they like or they think they could be potentially interested and they did that on both sides. You know, mm-hmm. Before we started programming, before we started hiring people and spending money, we obviously did a study and we talked to probably about 100 parties, maybe right. let's say 60, 70 borrowers and probably 20, 30 uh, lenders. Mm-hmm. And some of them think like this is stupid and they would never use it and some of them are really interested and obviously those are your potential first clients and um, you know when you when you keep talking to them you keep updating them they're very happy oftentimes people are very happy to give you inputs and feedback mm-hmm. and the more they feel involved the happier they also are at some point to commit to do a first transaction and I'm sure you know it as an entrepreneur it's yeah. always really hard to get the first few transactions in. right and uh, we, we were lucky to have somebody who committed to that and we started and then we talked about it but we always made sure we talked to both sides mm-hmm. and and i think there's really benefits here for both sides uh, to be to be made and in switzerland we were super successful with that that worked really well we had that balance we still have it today sometimes it's a little bit more this sometimes a little more that mm-hmm. but in general we have the balance and there's hardly a financing request that doesn't get any offers but i can tell you in other countries it's a different game right <laughs> 
we uh, obviously we thought, ah, oh, this is great, right? It works very well in Switzerland. Now let's just roll it out all over the world. Let's conquer the world. Yeah. And uh, we, yeah, I mean, just another experience that most entrepreneurs have is it was really hard in, in other countries. Mm-hmm. So uh, in Germany, it's still hard for us to find the lender base. We have the requests on the borrowing side, but to really catch up with the lender offers mm-hmm. is is hard. And in France, it's another situation. Again, like in Austria, for example, it works very well there. It's also nicely uh, balanced, okay. but it's always a challenge. And people have to really sometimes just focus on one side of the market and for several reasons, this is this is really hard. Yeah. If you think about Germany or France, why is it more difficult there? Do you see reasons for that? Like, is it just a more inefficient market there? Or is, is it a lack of network that you already had here in Switzerland to, to bring that up to speed? Or what is it? I had so many things. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's definitely, yeah. I mean, in Switzerland, the network that I had help there's no question and mm-hmm. i didn't have that in germany but we hired people who had it in germany okay um I, I mean you know one thing that we see in the german market is people like using faxes i i, I in switzerland i don't know anybody who still uses a fax but yeah, in germany that's a thing of the past yeah. <laughs> exactly, right? people use faxes in germany and um and maybe it's a specific to to the the public sector but I also heard like in real estate still, it, it's quite common. So people take a piece of paper, they write on the piece of paper, they put in the fax and they hit the dial button and it goes out to 15 banks and five brokers. And then they receive the offers just by hand, sometimes written on the fax or by email or phone. And that's just how they've done it forever, right? And mm-hmm. so it's really hard to change that behavior. Yeah. Uh, in Switzerland, it was it was easier. Also because people, I think, really liked other features, for example, the reporting feature, right? So you could always prove to the Gemeinderat, for example, that you have chosen the cheapest offer because there is always a track. Now, in Germany, I'm not sure if there is a need from a legal point of view to document that, Mm -hmm. um, but obviously if you do it by fax, it's probably hard, right, to show that. Uh, and so that's that. And in general, I mean, I don't want to insult anybody here, but uh, the cultural differences or the behavioral differences, I should say, are actually quite significant. And uh, to underestimate that is a mistake that has been made many times by us and others. But it's also very difficult to solve it, right? Because it's so tempting when you see, oh, this is working in Switzerland. And like Germany is not that far away from Switzerland, obviously. So it's the logical next step to do. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we're happy we're in Germany, right? Don't get yeah. me wrong. But it is definitely much harder than we originally, originally thought. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good reminder that just because it works in Switzerland, it's no guarantee that you will be able to conquer the Dach area or nope. even beyond that. Not at all. I also wonder what is actually your business model behind the platform? Do you take a certain percentage of the interest rate or how does it work? Yeah, we charge the... We charge the borrower a fee, uh, and it usually depends on the, the volume and the duration. So mm-hmm. we charge a few basis points uh, on that, yeah. which is which is quite low. And you can imagine we need huge volumes, obviously, to make money. Um, but the thing is, like, actually, when we started the company, I considered offering it for free because I really wanted to make sure that that is not a limiting factor for people to use it because I was so convinced that this will be the new thing and this is going to ultimately succeed and make debt capital markets transparent, what they are now today and and much more efficient. 
Um, so this is this is it. Yeah, I mean we charge by the volume and by the duration, and we do have clients who appreciate advisory to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the sense of like what duration could they potentially use or how does the market look like at the moment and sometimes we do charge for that as well. Okay. You also have reporting capabilities and you know basically a digital platform. Yeah. Have you also considered running like a SaaS model where your clients then always come back and use your platform to manage all their processes? Yes, we do have that solution. That's right. It's called Fincetra. And it's a product that we offer where very large borrowers, um, they don't want to like do this on a case-by-case basis, but they just mm-hmm. want to use the platform under their brand also. And it's then, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't run under lo- on a loan books' brand, but under their brand. And they use it as their tool to refinance. So we have uh, very large European companies that are in... Yeah, there's, well, for example, one that is pretty much in every country uh, in Europe and mm-hmm. abroad too. And uh, they manage their whole debt through the platform. Wow. So it makes it super easy for them, right? They can save probably a headcount of two, three people. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, they uh, get access to many more lenders. So their financing costs significantly come down. At the same time, they have the full reporting and analysis capabilities of the platform. And the handling is very simple. And because they're using it under their brand, there is also never a reluctancy from any of the lenders to make them an offer. Yeah, right? True. Yeah. But I would assume still the commission-based business model is still the most important one, revenue-wise. It is, you. yes. In terms of revenue, that's still the much bigger business, yeah. yes. One thing I also want to talk about is you are strongly focusing on the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals with loan books with your company. So what role will finance, from your perspective, play in the fight against climate change, for example? Yeah, I think in a, a very important role. And I mean, that's really a topic that is close to my heart and that I think has been neglected for way too long. Um, and, you know, for example, we issued a, a bond once uh, together with Oxbo or for Oxbo. And mm-hmm. that was a green bond. Now, uh, the reason it was a green bond is because Oxbo invested that money into sustainable energy projects. And I think the market today is ready and willing to maybe give up a tiny little bit of yield if they know that that money goes into a project that supports one of the 17 UN goals for sustainability or in general is good is good for our society and for our planet. Mm-hmm. And I, I cannot tell you the exact number, but I think institutional investors have now huge amounts of money allocated only for ESG and SDG uh, investments. And I think that is a field that we're still at the very, very beginning, but is super important to just keep our planet alive. Yeah, you know how they always say, put the money where your mouth is. So there's a big leverage that you can use to actually make a change. Yes. And it's still hard because there's no standards. Uh, There's a lot of misconceptions around it. Um, but we're trying to do our share also actually with other companies. I'm sure you, you've, you've looked at Radicant, right, uh, yeah. where we're really going fully after uh, the sustainable investments or, or, or after clients who are interested in sustainable investing. And I really think that is the future. That's what we need to do today. Mm-hmm. One other topic I also want to talk about is you already mentioned at the beginning, you get bored quite fast. So then it's also time for you to find a new role or to change and adapt your role. 
until you did at Loanbooks, you actually left the operational, the CEO role. Why did you decide to do that? Why yeah. was the timing right? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it was the one point that we've already talked about. So I realized I, I, I get this itch. Right? I want to do something else. Um, that's one thing. But the other thing was also that at this point in time, the company needed a CEO who could make the company bigger, scale the company, has international experience. I don't have that much international experience. I'm mostly Swiss-based. Mm -hmm. And I um, actually looked for a successor for two and a half years. Uh, you can imagine, first yeah. I had to convince my <laughs> co-founders. They didn't like the idea so much first, uh, but then they agreed. And uh, then we looked for, for two and a half years for a successor and yeah. really only said yes when we thought uh, that it was, it was the right person. And for me, I have to say, it's maybe a bit unusual, but it's not very hard for me to let go. I have a lot of friends, entrepreneur friends, or also investors. They say like, "What? Well, how can you do this? This is your baby. Why would you, why would you do that? And <laughs> I don't like that analogy at all. Uh, this is not my baby, right? I have two children. Those are my babies. Um, but uh, obviously, a company can grow also to one's heart. But for me, it's maybe, I mean, the, the thing that I'm, closest to is obviously the team the employees right mm -hmm. i care about about those people of course um uh, but it's not like i have an emotional attachment to the business itself that is not the case and so for me it's not hard to let go yep. but the process is still very hard because i'm obviously scared of disappointing people and, uh, and and that happens every time. It happens every time. And people then question, oh, why is he leaving? Does he not believe in the business and so on? No, mm -hmm. not at all. I'm leaving in parts because I do believe in the business. And I believe somebody else needs to take over and does a better job than I do. Because yeah. I am not somebody who can run a billion franc or euro business. That's not my strength. My strength is to find new ideas and develop them. That sounds like a very self-reflected and self-aware perspective on yourself and really also a, a no or low ego statement to actually be able to execute that step because many people I could imagine would also define themselves through the CEO role, which is probably quite an unhealthy relationship. Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, I have, I have tried to let go of my ego for decades and I, it's getting smaller but it's still here yeah yeah it's still here <laughs> and um but i'm trying to let go yeah. because um and also actually you know i meditate a lot and, and think a lot mm -hmm. about consciousness and so on and uh, people have interesting experience when they when they are in meditative states where they can actually let go of their ego so i'm still working on this it may take me another 50 years to get there but i have seen several people companies and oftentimes actually family-owned companies mm -hmm. where maybe the son or the daughter or maybe the, the grandson or the granddaughter is now CEO and they are in a bubble. And it happens too, I think, in the corporate world. They are in a bubble where people don't give them honest feedback anymore because they're scared. Mm -hmm. And they you know, behave themselves like, like they're, they're the king and they're invincible. And I, I, it makes me sick to see that. And uh, I've actually talked to people about this and I try to figure out whether they are realizing that they're in a bubble, but they're not. Uh, I guess they wouldn't, be, it would, they wouldn't be in a bubble if they were realizing it. Right. And so it's, an in, it's a really interesting topic because when I coach entrepreneurs or executives, 
that is that is a topic that oftentimes comes up. At, that at some mm-hmm. point, they realize that there is somewhat of a disconnect. They realize it because people become maybe a little bit more distant to them. Or, or, or they, you hear it also when they complain a lot about the team, about the others, the mistakes they make. So right. there is always a disconnect. And then it's quite hard to gently tell these people that maybe they it's actually their behavior and mm-hmm. it's, it's their egos and it's their being in a bubble and they have to burst that bubble, right? Absolutely. Uh, it's almost like psychotherapy sometimes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You mentioned meditation is an important pillar to, you know, to build that self-awareness and also letting go of the ego. What else have you tried and what else has helped you over the years to actually develop that strength? Yeah, Uh, that's a topic that's very dear to my heart. Thanks for asking. Um, When I worked in the bank, I always had to have other projects on the side. Otherwise, I didn't feel occupied enough. Let's call it that because it was really occupation. Uh, when I became an entrepreneur, I, I devoted myself entirely into that project and uh, I didn't do much else. I was mm-hmm. just working the whole time. And I at some point then realized that, especially when I had kids, that that can't be the ultimate solution. Mm-hmm. And I started to mostly observe other people also how they do it uh, and and how they, for example, don't sleep enough. And then I started to read books about this and people who are unbalanced. And it just started to, I did almost like a field research with people I observed while reading up the literature and then comparing what's going on. And oh, there that's is, what's exactly. happening outside. So I was putting, <laughs> I started to put people into book boxes. You yeah. know, okay, this is the guy that doesn't sleep. This is the guy who's in a bubble and so on. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I, I, I said, I didn't want to be like that. I wanted to uh, avoid that situation. So it's in the beginning, it was just reflect the reflection, I think, and, mm-hmm. and talking a lot to other people that I admire who are in a better situation. Those are mostly older people. Yeah. Uh, but I was also able, for example, to talk a lot about this with my wife, right, who gave me feedback. She's very straightforward. She's, she's from New Jersey. So she tells me, she tells it how it is. And, um, and that really helped me to reflect. Now, since I'm not involved in operations anymore, I have had more time to to do this. And mm-hmm. so uh, I spend a lot of time in the mountains, for example, by myself. Nice. Right? Yeah. I, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, the meditation retreats are definitely something that helps. Just doing other things, doing artsy things. For other people, it's maybe playing music or for other people, it's, it's spending mm-hmm. time with the kids, which is also extremely important for me or, par- or yeah. time with the parents. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm still exploring and, and experimenting. So, for example, last year, uh, where I live, just behind our house, there is a big vallo, a big pond. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the summer, sometimes I went in there with the kids. It's probably about 100 meters across, so it's, it's pretty big. And last fall, I said to the kids, hey, let's do this. Let, every weekend throughout the winter, we're now going into the vallo. And so we started doing that, and then it was like, you know, 20 degrees, it was cold, it was 18, 14 degrees. I think at 12 degrees, my, my, my younger daughter quit, uh, and at 8 degrees, my older daughter quit. <laughs> but I pulled it through, so I went, I was in that, in that pond the whole winter long, even if I had to bring the axe to break the ice. Wow. And I sat in the, in, in the ice water, and that is, for example, is a absolutely fantastic way of calming the mind, getting starting to reflect and and just enjoying that moment without thinking about 
shit, what do I have to do here? And what was yesterday? And that is annoying me. So that's really what this is about. It's about calming the mind and, and appreciating the moment we live in, because that's really all we have, the moment we live in. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for, for sharing this. I, I love that topic as well. I have so. more for you later. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have a second podcast offline. <laughs> Very good. Another thing I also want to talk about, I think you just yesterday participated in the Six Spark Academy. So there was a full day workshop, etc. So first of all, it's basically a program where companies get prepared to go public here in Switzerland. First of all, what actually motivated you to participate in the Sparks IPO Academy program? Uh, motivation was be uh, out of duty, kind of, or interest, because I, as a chairman of the company, have to make sure I'm always exploring options, right? Sure. And uh, investors, I think, have a right to that their that their senior management always is on top of what's going on in the market and and also talk about financing or exit options and an IPO is one of these options uh, i think it's a it's a very feasible option and so i was uh, very happy to be invited into the program and uh, it, it was a very interesting day yesterday so you basically do your homework as a chairman so to speak absolutely yes what did it take away from the program so far well, I think, you know, the um, main takeaways from yesterday were obviously all the technical aspects of how does an IPO work? How, when do you start? What is the process? What do you have to do to the IPO? But unfortunately, it doesn't stop there, right? Afterwards, once you're listed, then there's yeah. still a lot of work to be done. So it was very helpful to understand the full picture of that. You know, pros and cons, opportunities and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second part of it, which is also just as important, is know, getting to know the people. On the one side, there were all these great entrepreneurs with their fantastic companies, and it's just fun to meet them and discuss with them. And if entrepreneurs get together, it's always like a little bit like magic because yep. they understand each other, they are open, they maybe tell each other pro about problems they have that they wouldn't tell somebody else, and then you can help each other. And also the, um, the suppliers or the service providers right mm -hmm. that were there that presented it's very good to know them they're very they were very open very willing to share information and, uh, and and it was and the whole thing was done in a very nice setting you know six takes care of you there uh, it, yeah, it was perfect. really it was really well done i have to say you mentioned pros and cons so from your perspective you know after thinking about the whole concept of going public where do you see some advantages and also some disadvantages yeah I mean, the advantages are for sure that uh, it's a, a, a fantastic access to capital. If you want yeah. to grow uh, and, and if you, you know, especially if you do international expansion and you, and you grow in batches like another country, another country, another country, uh, it's a great way to raise capital and also to just be present and to show that you're here when you're listed on an exchange, your company is something, right? It's not just the mom and pop shop around the corner. It is yeah. to be taken seriously. Um, I think those are the, probably the biggest, uh, the biggest pros. And then on the cons, it's obviously the unbelievable amount of reporting and work that has to be done beforehand and afterwards. Mm -hmm. I remember very well, I spoke with uh, an entrepreneur who went public about 10 or 15 years ago in Switzerland. And he told me that once he was listed, he had between 200 and 240 
analyst and investor meetings a year. <laughs> now, that is, that is unbelievable, right? Yeah. I mean, if you are a CEO and you are taking care of your company, and most of these companies that are listing are, you know, growth companies. Mm -hmm. So it, it needs the full attention of the management yeah, team. Of course. And, and at some point, you then, in the process, I asked that question actually yesterday several times, uh, how much time does the CEO and the CFO need to devote in order to do an IPO? And they said, yeah, probably about 40 to 50% for one to two yeah. years beforehand. We didn't talk about afterwards. But I think that is the biggest problem that uh, is probably very much underestimated. You need to keep the investor community very happy. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to be very careful, right? As an entrepreneur, sometimes we just like to do things the way we want to do it and yeah, say the things we want to say. And once you're listed, you have to be careful. And I think it's yeah. important for, for, for companies and entrepreneurs to understand that Oftentimes, the personality type of an entrepreneur is not necessarily the best CEO of a listed company. So again, we're at the topic where <laughs> when, it's when is it time to let go and let somebody else take over? Absolutely. Mm. You also mentioned that you, know, you have multiple options to choose from where you would like to go public, also outside of Switzerland, of course. So what would you gain from going IPO on Sparks or also the six mainnet market? Yeah. Um, well, I, I did a similar program actually like this one with Euronext a few okay. years ago. Yeah. And while there is definitely technical differences and, you know, capital markets, do you want to be listed in London or in Paris or in Amsterdam or in Zurich and so on, mm -hmm. that I cannot really uh, tell you the details about. But I'm Swiss. I'm a Swiss guy. Um, I'm trying to keep the startups, the, the jobs, the business in Switzerland. I think we are very super early stage friendly in Switzerland, but I think as soon as we get bigger, it is always a bit hard, which is why we see so many companies being sold uh, to other countries, right? Into, right. into, into foreign hands. And that's just how it is. And I'm not against that. But in general, I would probably choose the Swiss market because this is my home. And this is where my family and my friends are. And uh, I don't have to commute to London. Fair point. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any immediate next steps that you now want to take? You know, also looking for after the program where you say, we do now want to prepare for an IPO or any other homeworks or assignments that you take with you? Well, first of all, the program isn't over, right? The program sure. is going to last for about a half a year. Yeah. Um, and no, I think for loan books, the moment now to, to seriously prepare for an IPO is too early. Uh, yeah. we're, it's still very volatile. We're still growing. We have all kinds of issues left and right, like every other young company too. So it, it's, it's too early for us to do this now. But uh, it may not be too early in a few years down the road. And as I said before, it is my job to know the options and keep in touch with the suppliers and see and hear what's going on. And then at some point in time, things happen sometimes so quickly. Yeah. Like now we have this crisis and valuations have come down like crazy. You know, sometimes it suddenly goes into another direction and you just have to be ready. And I think that that's really helpful. And I think that's kind of the duty of every uh, German CEO and entrepreneur. Absolutely. And if you look at the numbers, you have completed transactions with a volume of over 30 billion euros on your platform. What is your next step? Of course, you think a bit about the IPO, but it's not an immediate action that you take away. What are your next steps and goals and milestones with loan books for the next 
12 to 24 months. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think at the moment it is to find a way to navigate this crisis very uh, successfully and unharmed yeah. as much as we can. Um, that's one thing. And we're in a very lucky situation that we don't have to worry about liquidity. We're, we're funded. We have enough money for a while. So we don't need to raise at the moment. I think that is the good news. Um, and we want to, I think the biggest challenge is like for many is to find fantastic staff and maintain fantastic staff and, and people who really pull the wagon and, and, and invest everything and, and give it everything. Uh, I think those are the highest priorities for us. We are continuing to develop the platform. I mentioned to you Fincetta, like mm -hmm. the white label subscription version of loan books. I mentioned to you the real estate part. We're now developing heavily that real estate part. So that's that's our priority number one at the moment. And, you know, there's so many customer segments and there's so many regions in the world that we are not active yet, right. but we want to capture it all, right? Ultimately, yeah. what we want to do is we want to make debt capital markets efficient and transparent. And at the moment, we have done this, but in a very tiny, tiny fraction of the market. <laughs> so there is lots more to be done. So much more potential to capture. Yes. And on a personal level, you continue to invest. You also co-founded other startups. Will you ever stop with the startup and entrepreneurship game? Yeah, I, I don't know at the moment. Probably not. Uh, it's it's what I like to do. I I I think I'm very fortunate to have a, a pretty well balanced portfolio of startups that I can help and that I'm invested with. Uh, people, executives or founders, entrepreneurs that I can coach in difficult situations, you know, because I've lived through this so many times, right? Whatever it is, capital raise, reduce cost, problems with co-founders, problems with investors. I mean, I'm very happy to, to give support there. Yeah. And on the other hand, um, I also like the mandates that are in the large corporates or in the large corporates, but at the edge of the startups. Like, so for example, my, my, my board seat at Radicand or also my involvement with Bosch, Bosch Finance and Valu is I'm kind of working for an established corporate, but it is about founding something new or running something new technology based. And in that, because I know both worlds quite well, I think it's, it's, it's helpful to have somebody in the, on that juncture that helps both sides to understand the other and then really move forward in a in a productive way it's not always easy uh, and that's the professional part of of that well-balanced uh, bouquet i guess but mm -hmm. then on the other side obviously i have also time to you know meditate to spend time with the family uh, to do sports just shout out to all entrepreneurs don't forget your physical fitness uh, and your mental fitness, it's super uh, important. That sounds like a well-balanced life overall. Yeah, I'm working on it still. To wrap up the conversation, we also have some rapid fire questions for you. So mm -hmm. I give you different options to choose from or a simple question and you mm -hmm. have to answer in one sentence. Okay. You ready? Let's sure. go. Investor or founder? Both. Is that allowed? In a good mix, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair point. How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Probably eight. Perfect. Biggest investment red flag for you? Investment red flag. Yeah, it's if the founders are not committed. Yeah. 
lack of commitment would show in like working part time yes. or yeah part time. And one thing that is also very important for me is that they're very quick in, for example, their answers. I get per day. I probably get between five and ten pitches on all channels. Yeah. I'm not looking at it anymore because I don't have sure. the chance. But uh, when I in, when I start talking to somebody who catches my eye, you know, I start a dialogue by just throwing out ten questions that come to my mind, and yeah. then if I have an answer within a day, and the answers are, they have content, and they're not yeah. trying to avoid the question, um, and and uh, they're honest, or I, I don't know if they're honest, but I feel like they're honest, then that dialogue continues. But sometimes people send fantastic pitch decks and you ask 10 questions, you get like all vague, mushy yeah. answers, and then that's a red flag. Absolutely. Coffee or tea? Tea. Regret making an investment or regret not making it? I don't regret. I yeah. like that. Morning person or night owl? Morning. Which investment surprised you the most so far, if there's any? Um, okay, my brain goes right to, you know, two different ones. One is yeah. very successful and one is not so successful. I mean, I should maybe speak about the one that was not so successful because the f it was a fantastic idea. It was Health Bank. They don't exist anymore. It was a fantastic idea. They wanted people to own their health data mm -hmm. and then decide if it can be used uh, to make money. And then if they gave it up to make money, they would get benefit from that. And it was really, I thought the idea was fantastic, but ultimately it didn't work and we had to put it into the grave. Right. Uh, that's also part of the game. Absolutely. The last one for you today, Basel or Zurich? Oh, gosh, that's, a, that, that's a not fair. Such a mean question to stop. <laughs> that is really not fair. It's very, very, that's very mean of you. I have my heart in both places. Yeah. Um, you know, my friends in Basel, they always tease me that I'm in Zurich and this and that. And I think that rivalry between the cities, I, can't, I don't feel it. I think yeah. it's too funny to some extent. So when I'm at Fasnacht in Basel, I do laugh about the jokes about Zurich. Um, but Zurich people don't make jokes about Basel because they're the bigger ones. They don't need. They don't have that. <laughs> they don't have that complex. But, but Basel people sometimes have a little bit of a complex because Zurich is much bigger. So I like both. Uh, they're very different, very different mentalities, very different cities. But I'm home in both places. Also here, it's you strive for a good balance as well. That's right? important. Absolutely, Stefan. Thank you so much for coming on the show. That was a lot of fun. All the best. Lots of success. And thank you again for the great conversation. Thank you, Silvan. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs.